Hello, my name is Ari Block. This is the story of how I almost fucked up a million dollar project on my first job on my first day in that job, and which ultimately did lead to exiting the company for $80 million, but with a lot of really interesting mistakes on the way. Failure, a term burdened with such negativity that it can end careers, companies, fame, and fortune. However, those who have experienced it know that failure can also serve as a catalyst for progress. Even though it is rarely part of the narrative, it is time to delve into the heart of the story and listen to the vulnerable perspective of accomplished entrepreneurs, leaders, artists, athletes, and those who inspire us. Join your hosts, Alex Love and Elliot Volkman, as we dismantle the stigma surrounding failure and empower you to transform these challenges into opportunities on your own journey forward. Welcome to Mastering the Art of Failing. Thank you so much, Ari, for joining us. We're really excited to dig in. Let's recap. You said first job ever. (laughs) Walk in and the expectation is you take over a couple million dollars worth of accounts. So how did we get there? What were your expectations walking into this role? What did you think you would be doing? And how did you get to inheriting such a massive portfolio day one, job one? Uh, Honestly, I can't explain it. I think the only reason I got that job, I was hired as a software developer and this project came along and I'm a South African, so I spoke perfect uh, English and I was back then situated uh, um, in Israel. And the other thing, I was young and ambitious and I had to work with Australia. So they were like, there's this guy, he speaks perfect English and he can wake up four o'clock in the morning to work with the Australians. So I think they just pawned it off to me And this was almost 20 years ago. It was Australian dollars, so a little less than our currency at the time. The American dollars, but still a lot of money, absolutely. Yeah, okay. So what initially ran through your mind, right? When you get handed this, you're coming in as a software engineer, right? Just because you speak the language, essentially. Um, How did you go about that? Like, where did you start? Were you like, all right, I'm excited. I'm going to dig in. I'll figure it out. Were you immediately, I have no idea. I'm well over my head. I don't know what to do. Walk us through how you were feeling at the moment. Oh, it was a mix of feelings. On the one hand, I was terrified. I remember myself on that first day, just sitting at my desk. The CEO walks into the room and he's, he, this is, he is a daunting fella, massive, wide shoulders. One of those guys that go running at four o'clock in the morning and munching on protein bars all day. And he has this massive folder of, 800 pages in his hand, which is the specification of this project, thumps it onto my desk, right, noisily. And he says to me, I want to plan to close this million dollar deal by tomorrow. I was anxious. <laughs> Honestly, I was petrified. When you're that young and, and with the milk still on your lips, so to speak, you, you say, yes, sir. And you get to work no matter what you're feeling at that time. Yeah, no, I get that. Um, so what did that plan look like the next day? How'd you put that together? I worked my ass off. (laughs) I did not sleep. There were a whole bunch of colored pieces of paper and I marked everything up and I did all the work and I put together this Excel sheet about all the steps and I identified all the risks and I put together the plan that I thought would be the best at that stage. But what I did is I identified the biggest risk point in the project, which was this integration with the third party. And as it turned out, that that turned out to be my biggest nightmare, this third-party integrator. All right. So let's dig into that because that sounds like a pivot point. You got your plan. You're ready to go. They're like, yeah, sounds great. 
let's talk about that integration point. So the, I'm basically, I'm a couple months into the project and I'm standing before the CEO's door about to knock, but frozen in, in place. And I, as I am retelling the story, I've got goosebumps. I'm, I, I can almost feel that fear that I was feeling back then because I, I basically came to report to him my progress or lack thereof progress because I was unable to get this project done. Everything was hinging on this integration with this third party. And at that stage, they were the enemy to me. They were the thing that was preventing my progress. And I felt like I was going to go in there and I was going to get fired because it's been a couple months and these million dollars are still in the air. I was quite honestly afraid at that stage. Yeah. And talk about their reaction or not your boss. You give this report, right? Obviously, great news. Right. We made no progress. That's I'm right. I'm just new person. You trusted me with it. What was the feedback coming your way? Yeah. Look, I was very young at the time. So I came into this fight or flight. I had an arsenal of excuses of why these guys, right, are the enemy, why they're stopping shit from moving forward. And I just dived into that, right? And I was expecting the worst, but he really, he was a mentor to me. And he showed me by asking, but first of all, by listening, and then by asking really good questions, he showed me that a, we're a team together, and B, he diffused my stress that I was quite, quite visibly in at that point. And then at some stage, he said to me, look, Ari, what you need to do is go visit the supplier in person. And I did not want to do that. They were the enemy. <laughs> and I was like classical geek. And I was like, I'm using all this technology to communicate with them. Why do I need to go there? Makes absolutely no sense. And then no, he said to me, to trip to Australia. <laughs> so, so this was actually the supplier. They were in um, West Europe in the Baltic Triangle. This was Estonia. Mm. So it wasn't that, <laughs> okay. it wasn't well, too bad of a no. trip. It was a couple hours, but I was like, no, why do we need to do this? And he started to get a little annoyed. And he said to me, Ari, you're going on a paid vacation. <laughs> this, this is exactly what he said. You're going on a paid vacation. You're going to wind them. You're going to dine them and you're going to build a relationship. And you're not going to think too much about work. And I was like, not think about work. This is the whole objective that I'm going for. It blew my mind. Um, but I said, yes, sir. And, and that's what I did. Yeah, that's so interesting. And like all of us aging ourselves. But I think a lot of us go into our first couple of jobs not realizing how important relationship building right. is and that trust that you can build with people. And I had a similar experience at my first job, maybe not millions of dollars on the table, but I actually got a really poor like Q1 performance review because I didn't talk enough. Like my focus mm -hmm. was like, I come to the office, I put my headphones on, I do my work. And they were really like, you don't engage. You're not a part of the culture. We don't know you. We don't, you're not talking. And so I stepped back and did less work, which made no logical sense to me. Especially coming out of college where they're like, do all the things, the papers, the whatever. But that's a really hard but important lesson I think to learn so early in your career is that people want to work with people. And those relationships really do drive business. That's right. And off the topic, but we can come back to this later, there's a difference between competence and uh, confidence. And as human beings, we often confuse the two. So I, yeah. I completely agree with that. But I, I said, yes, sir. And, and once you agree and commit, disagree and commit, either way you commit. So I, I went to uh, uh, Estonia and I learned a little bit of the language to break the ice. And I wind them, I dined them, I built relationships. and being the young, arrogant bastard that I was at the time, 
I came back and I was ready to prove to the CEO that was a waste of time, didn't work, and you were wrong. Basically, I was that bad. But then, magically, so it seemed, the project was done in a couple of weeks. And that shocked me. Absolutely shocked me. Yeah. How has that influenced you maybe today? What have you pulled forward from that relationship building, personal touch? Yeah, that's a great question. It actually started a lifelong journey of learning and how to learn from mistakes and identifying the psychological biases or cognitive biases that learn to our mistakes in that process of both decision-making and learning from our mistakes. So the kind of retrospective and the CEO was the first person to put me on that track because I found myself standing again in front of his door, paralyzed with this time, not fear, but confusion. And I'm about to knock and I'm, I'm asking myself, how did I get this so wrong? How did I miss it? And what were the mistakes that led to, why didn't I figure this out on my own? And I knocked on the door, heard the come in, and he pointed out to me that basically I suffered from what is called in the industry or in the psychology, egocentric bias. <laughs> and what he, I, I see, Elliot, you're very familiar. Egocentric <laughs> bias is basically the inability to see beyond your own nose, right? And the way he explained it to me is we're all playing a game. And this game sometimes has the same outcome or the same goals. In our case, we both had to deliver this project in order to get uh, paid by the customer, but the rules might be different for each player. Now that shocked me. And in this case, the rules of the game were culture. And I failed to basically break bread. I failed to, to establish a relationship to provide homage. And by flying over there, spending that money, being away from my family, buying dinner, all those things, they created a relationship then allowed us to move forward. And the way they saw me before is who is this asshole who's coming and making these demands of us? What is this? And came across as incredibly arrogant. And I was incredibly arrogant at the time. And that's what came across and it completely destroyed the project. But as I said before, that was just the first step of understanding that there's all these barriers that in essence prevent us from doing well in our professional environment. Yeah, that's so important too today, right? Because it's so easy to ignore the person who's emailing you or clacking you or texting you or what have you, especially when you haven't connected with them, right? Like you don't right. you have the right. name of the case and you don't know them or ask about their kids or what have that's you, right? right? Just looking at business versus people. That's right. And maybe cool. don't answer the email. Pick up the phone and, and, and talk to the person. Make a personal connection. An introvert's worst nightmare. I hate that. <laughs> uh, that especially in a me. remote world me. now. Right. Absolutely. Cool. Yeah. And unfortunately, but, back then, we have offices with pop-in visits and all that. But just jumping ahead, obviously, we'll keep going on that journey. For those younger folks who are maybe working remote, who don't necessarily work in an office, how would you explain to them the value of building those relationships? Obviously, egocentricity does apply to anyone just entering the workforce, just like as you were. But yeah, how do you break through that, especially maybe if you are an introvert and prefer to be a hermit like myself? Yeah, that's a great question. Working remotely has made it more difficult. Hmm. And there are no more pop-ins. And in fact, in this remote environment, a pop-in feels rude, right? And we also try to keep these meetings that we do have as short as possible. There's less of the small talk, right? But building those relationships allows us to, to have trust with one another. And when shit hits the fan and you need somebody to be there 
you're on site, you're deploying a project, it's maybe 9 p.m., everybody's gone home, but you need that support, then unfortunately, the difference between them being there for you or not might just be if they like you. It might just be that they know what you're going through and you understand what they're going through. So that human connection is incredibly important. Yeah. And honestly, this is something that Alex and I have discussed in a couple of past episodes where that branding experience, it's it's human connection. If you're trying to create a transactional relationship, it is going to die as soon as you sign the contract, the agreement. But if you want something to continue on, there is absolutely always going to be a human element, especially if we're getting into this space where there's now AI supposedly taking jobs, even though it's not doing that quite yet, automation, all those other factors, there still absolutely has to be human components. And you more than anyone, you have a very product-driven vision brain in your head. I We don't go back so far, but I've seen the stuff that you work on. And we work in this world where there's now like these product-led systems where they just expect people to give them a bunch of money and hope they stick around for years to come. So I love a little bit of insight into your perspective. How do you navigate around a world that is so transactional now and so productized where they're neglecting the human element, which is absolutely critical to everything that we do? Yeah, it's a difficult question. I think the most important, I think the most important way to look at it is to understand that there is a certain process, right? In everything that we do every day. And we basically collect information in order to make a decision. Then we form a plan. As we form that plan, we execute it. And hopefully many of us will try to learn from what happened. In that process, those psychological barriers or or biases are affecting us in every single step of the way. For example, we will make decisions based on who are the players, if we like them, if they like us, we might try to avoid people we don't like. For example, if we're collecting information, then we might collect information or ignore information that doesn't support what we already believe. That's called confirmation bias. And what about information, collecting information from people we don't like, or maybe ignoring information we don't know that even exists, right? That's called availability bias. So every step of the way, there are these social and psychological barriers that are preventing us from being successful in essence. And that happens also in the the other stages that I mentioned downstream, also learning from your mistakes. And then the question is, in my opinion, how do you overcome those biases and simply be aware of them, understand them, and then have tools to address them? The first step is just understand the addiction example, right? Just understand and admit that you have a problem, right? Mm. On your journey to self-awareness. That's my biggest recommendation, right? Learn how to be more self-aware in what you're doing and how you're doing it. Build a process around it and improve your process. Because I think those processes are incredibly efficient in creating improvement over time. So let's go back to your failure point. So we completed the project. It got done, right? Where did it end? What's your exit strategy? What else happened there? Yeah. So unfortunately, this first mess up was only the first of many. We actually ended up fully deploying the project. We got the million dollars in our bank. We distributed these hardware units across the points of sale in Australia for for this big telco called Telstra. And we had this reporting system in place. And I remember myself again at my desk, sorry, just looking through this information coming from the reporting system. And 
I was sure the system which I built was broken because it was showing me nobody was using the hardware units in Australia. So I was like, something is wrong here. And my first gut thing is go and look at the software, go look for bugs, ad logs, et cetera. And I worked on that for a couple of weeks just to verify that the data I was getting was in fact true. Because I, I was, again, we talked about confirmation bias. I wanted to believe that there was a bug in my system because mm -hmm. the other option that nobody was using our product was way worse. So I was just suffering from confirmation bias all over again there. Right. We, we want to think that our products are the best products. And we, we had that conversation on another podcast. You don't do your customer discovery. You could have idea in the world to you. But if no one ends up using it, maybe it's not the best idea. So dig into that right. point, right? You've got the data. There are no bugs. What happens next? Right. You convince your... Back to getting on a plane to this time to Australia. Okay. Of course, what you do as a product manager is discovery. So I went and I talked to about a dozen of these stores. I went into the stores. I talked to the people and I identified that there was no incentive for them to actually use the system. They were so focused on selling new phones. They didn't want to help the customer copy their contacts and, and content from one phone to their new phone unless they actually asked for it because it slowed down them in sales, which was they were basically commission-based. So of course, I took this back to the internal team, to the customer team. We worked around it uh, and came up with a bunch of suggestions. None of them worked. So again, we identified the problem. We tried to solve it. We didn't. What, what made it worse is that they wanted to renew and buy more units. So they knew it. So, so this is crazy. <laughs> they knew it's not working. They knew it's not used. But it had a, this great marketing effect. So in fact, we were successfully selling something that was to a certain degree practically not used. Wait, there's more. I, I was always a geek, so I was very in tune with this thing called Android, which back in the day was, was a thing that only geeks that dabbled in Linux knew what it was. And my comment to the CEOs was, there's something coming, Android and Apple Cloud, these things are going to completely obsolete our product. So not only are our customers not using our stuff, we are going to be completely obsoleted within two years. So I was bringing to the team this gloom and doom of everything's going to fall apart, which now we know in retrospect is true, but back in the day, it was outrageous. And I had to present that information to the team. How was that received? Much like before, I was much more afraid and anxious than it was much more difficult in my mind than it was in reality. And once more, the executive team actually listened and did their mm -hmm. research. It was a hard pull to, sw to swallow. The solution actually came from the lead salesperson in the United States. His name was uh, Adi, and he had this idea of basically pivoting the, the company from focusing on this idea of we're helping people manage their content on their phones to actually extracting information from phones for the purpose of police and federal agencies. And the whole concept there was that if you extract information at the point of arrest, there's no chain of custody. So it makes the whole process much more easier. And in fact, we pivoted our devices to create legal evidence. One of the famous stories that I told everybody I was hiring, because I thought the company was inspirational at that point, mm -hmm. is that we were able to collect a video of a 13 seconds where this felon criminal molested a six-year-old girl and took a video of, him, of himself 
but deleted that video. Our hardware was able to basically reconstruct the video because I don't know if you know this, but when you delete it, really what you do is you're deleting the name of the video. You're not deleting the content of the video. So we were able to de-encrypt it, reverse engineer the information, and on the spot provide evidence that put that person in jail for many years. So that, that whole pivot was basically because we identified and acknowledged that we had a problem based on the information we collected from those reports originally. I'm curious if I can jump in here. That is a significant pivot. You're going from a consumerized solution that basically, in theory, would have added value to phone sales persons to a critical asset for law enforcement and legal purposes. What do you think would have occurred if there was that ego mentality and stubbornness? A lot of people would not be as fortunate. Obviously, again, I'm, I know you. You are a trustworthy person. You come to the table with facts and information that have a result of convincing story, but not everyone presents as well. What would happen if that happened? Would, would y'all just dig down to the grave? Yeah, yeah. What, would, what do you feel would have occurred in a situation like that? It's not all me. It's, I would say it's sure. a, I'm a small part of it. And in fact, I personally have been part of teams where we have made exactly that mistake. And what, happened, what was fortuitous in this situation is that we identified an issue early and that bought us time that bought us two years before the market forces became a reality. And the technical CEO, he had this thing which he called developing, it, developing into the draw or writing to the draw like poets do. And you write this thing or develop this thing and you don't pull it out of the draw until it really becomes important. But that bought us two years to think about the marketing, to think about the R&D, to develop a product and not spend too much money on it. So when we really needed it, we could pull it out. So in fact, what I describe in two minutes really rolled out over two years. But because we weren't arrogant to say, no, that's not going to happen, we were able to put a long-term plan in place. Unfortunately, I've also been part of teams who have said that's not going to happen, completely ignored it, and didn't put any kind of controls in place. And at the end of the day, it's not a single person. It's also about the team's ability to work together and how the team makes decisions and learns from their mistakes. And too often do we see this people who are incredibly articulate or incredibly technical, using their skills in technical ability or, or articulation to hide mistakes, to augment the reality, to basically make poor decisions. Yeah, just pulling on that concept of teams, right? From your experience and sort of the different teams that you've operated from, what are some of the indicators that you see that this is a really strong team, that we have the ability to move the needle, make the right decisions, um, versus some of those instances where you're like, this team is going to crumble there's too many egos. We're, we're not going to re- yeah. get anywhere. The positive indicators is the ability to listen. If you say something and the answer is no, and there's no follow-up questions to dig in, that's a bad sign. If your executive team is listening, asking questions, doing follow-ups, great sign. If there is a process for decision-making, that's a great sign, right? If you're thinking about how to make decisions, great sign. If there's pre-mortem and post-mortem activities, great sign. I would say pre-mortem activities are the least common and probably something most people don't even know about. That's a great sign. It's an activity that comes from the risk management world. So I would say the, the positive and negative signs are, are the same, right? It's the if you do something or you don't do something. And it's mainly around how decisions are made and how you learn from mistakes. I would say that the topic of the podcast is just 
incredibly important to, to any business around the world. Yeah, seems like the key themes are clear communication and planning, right? That's right. That's right. And, and just going back to, to the, the biases is also understanding how those processes of communication, gathering information and planning can go wrong is, is really a key aspect of it. Because I think a lot of people know you have to do something, but if you are doing it poorly, then that isn't a lot better than not doing it at all. And we have the sense, uh, the sense of false achievement because, oh, we did that, but we didn't really achieve what we should have achieved through that process. Is our process good enough? Yeah. Plus there's the peer factor. Sometimes you're not communicating effectively to the point. You might be grinding all day, but if no one knows what you're doing because you're just so busy getting things done, you're not moving anywhere. It relates back to what Alex was talking about. She is just busting her ass, keeping her head down. You spend more time chatting with people and oh, all of a sudden you're you're running up the, the chain because people are aware that you exist. That's right. I attended I have, 12 meetings. I checked everything off my list, right? I must have done a good day's work, but it doesn't. That's right. Point. I had to, one of my employees' name was David, and he never talked at meetings. And in fact, we had four or five people on the call, and only consistently three of them were talking. And this was pointed to, somebody else pointed this out to me, and I was like, okay, what can I do? So I made a point to give time in the meeting to ask David and the other uh, team members, are we missing something? Is there information? I talked, I, I may have mentioned availability bias or attentional bias, right? These are the things that, that we're not even thinking about. It's information that we don't know that exists. And I asked him this question and consistently, every time I asked the question, he gave this incredible insight that was incredibly valuable. And all I had to do is just, give him that space to communicate. And then, of course, when you make a mistake once, then you're asking yourself, what other mistakes are you making? And that starts you on a path to additional growth. Yeah, that's such a typical facilitator trick as a former consultant, right? Especially in the virtual space. It's so easy that's to right. turn your camera off and hide, right? We have a lot of that's people right. who, if you're really not truly going to contribute to the conversation, why are you on the meeting? I'm sure right. you have other things that you could be doing. Um, but yeah, people don't always consider that every form of communication or meeting doesn't work for every personality type, right? There are plenty of very quiet people who have great ideas that don't have the personality to stand up and say, here's what I think, right? Not all of us are type A. So that's great that's right. you make that time or acknowledge good ideas that's come right. from anywhere in the company. And just because yeah. you didn't push it doesn't mean that you don't have something to say. Yeah, Elliot had a great point before about communicating well. The problem is that if you're a great communicator, you can win a negotiation or an argument or in essence, quiet somebody who may have a really important point. So the other point is not to abuse your negotiation skills in an environment where really you should be listening and trying to understand somebody's point of view, because even though you don't understand it, you could be missing something incredibly important that will help you succeed. And that's the flip side of being a great communicator. It can also harm you. Yeah, good point. And leader too, right? Titles. Sometimes titles get in the way, right? I just spoke on a panel right. about cultures of experimentation and I would hate for my, I would be failing as a leader of my team if people thought just because I said something, it was a good idea. And so I'd right. go out of my way to say, this is probably bonkers, 
uh, how, what do you guys think, right? Putting yourself out there that just because I have XYZ title or I sit somewhere on the org chart doesn't mean I have my shit together. And it doesn't mean it's a good idea. <laughs> so right. please contribute to the conversation. It's, that's true. It's tricky because on the one hand, we want to be confident. Because if we're not confident, then people think we're not competent. But on the other hand, we want people to feel comfortable to speak up to power, right? So if you have that VP title, people may assume that you're right. But what that does, it quiets voices, right? And that's not a good thing. What I've found is being humble human and specifically admitting to mistakes in a structured manner. One thing that I do, which I think is an incredibly important tool, is decision journaling. And we'll talk more about this, but basically it means that you journal what your decision was, what were the assumptions that you had, the data that you had, pros and cons, and the decision that you actually made. If you take that into a team activity and basically say, this is the decision I need to make, these are the pros and cons, then people then become, you become more human. And if you make a mistake, now you're using your journal to come and say, here, this is why we made this decision. This is the piece of information that we had or did not have. And this is why we made the decision. Now you're not talking, now you're not talking about blaming a certain person, but you're talking about how do we have a better process moving forward in order to improve on our decision-making capabilities. And that kind of moves it away because every time you come into a post-mortem as opposed to a pre-mortem, everybody's afraid of blame. And moving away from blame, that really enables a more healthy culture that enables people to speak up because they're not afraid that they're, they're going to be shooting themselves in the leg or, or whatnot. I love absolutely every bit of that. What you're talking about is really the split difference between a leader mindset and a manager or authoritative mindset. It's being able to be in a position where you're creating transparency and trust, having vulnerable conversations in theory, just like this series is designed to do, and showing that you're a human behind your confidence. But too much confidence leads to that ego mentality. You shut people out, you shut people down. People will show up to meetings, they will remain quiet, they will take that baggage and it will carry on to other careers and other positions. And it just does a disservice to you and everyone else. At the end of the day, you need to embrace a culture of diverse opinions. And I think that's like the middle ground of everything that I'm hearing here. Yeah, that's absolutely true. I, I think everybody knows that, but executing and having the tools and techniques to do that is incredibly difficult. And, and that's why I like to talk about processes and break it down and recommend books explaining the psychological biases like Thinking Fast and Slow by Daniel Kahneman and Amos Traversky and, and Nudge by Richard Taylor. And if you really think about your process, then you can make a difference. But just telling people, hey, be better, be inclusive, that's hard because people are not inclusive for psychological reasons which are built into them. So a thousand years ago, whatever, when we were running away from tigers, our, our brain one or our brain that basically forces us to think in shortcuts, it had value. And even today it has value. But not in all situations do we want to think fast. Sometimes we want to think slow. So being able to do that and knowing when to think fast, when to think slow, to have processes to allow you to do both because sometimes you need to think fast. Absolutely. And you need to take these shortcuts that allow you to make decisions fast without having all the information, right? That's also important in certain situations. 
having all of this available to you is an incredibly powerful tool for everyone, not just managers. Think about individual contributors, even software developers. They make incredibly important decisions and they're doing the same thing. They're gathering information, they're making predictions, putting out a plan, they're taking action, and then they're learning from their mistakes. Same as everyone. Yeah, that's an awesome book for sure. Any other resources or books um, that you'd like to share with the audience? We'd love to put those out there that have helped influence how you think of things and train others to think about this process mindset. Yeah, I, I have a long list. I can We can probably attach that to the, I love Audible. Maybe you can attach a list to the, to the podcast and share that with the community. Absolutely. Yeah, we can absolutely make a little addendum of Ari's book list and make it the winter reading list for y'all. There you go. But yeah, I don't know. Of all the conversations that I've had with you, it sounds like psychology is such a critical element in your approach to how you just function through everything. Uh, obviously, our relationship's been business-oriented, but you've always come to the table uh, with some big-ass and bold ideas, but it always tends to work out because you think things through, you bring proof and evidence. I just absolutely love and appreciate your perspective on how this all functions. If, And I'm just going to throw this out there, but uh, if anyone has the time, I would absolutely reach out to Ari to pick his brain. He is an operational leader to the degree that any organization would need. Yeah. It, it just reminds me of this conversation that we just had with Glenn Hellman on how he coaches organizations. I see that in your future roadmap. You're the CEO of like 30 different companies somehow, because if anyone could do it, it's you. That's a, that's an exaggeration, but I appreciate it. No, it's it. totally real. Nonetheless. <laughs> Awesome. So I want to make sure we close out your story, right? So we talked about a couple of pivot points, completely changing sort of the orientation of the product, right, to help law enforcement. Where does that story end for you? How long were you at the company? What was your exit yeah. strategy? What did you do next? Yeah. What happened is over a period of uh, two years, we built out that product and uh, the company was uh, sold to uh, a Japanese investment uh, company for $80 million. And until today, I, I remember the the smile on the CEO's face when he made that check cleared, basically, and he got his equity value in the bank. So in, in this case, gratefully, had a wonderful exit, right? And wonderful ending of the story. But that's not always the case. I've been in environments, unfortunately, where I had to fire a whole team of people and the companies just ran out of cash. Any successful entrepreneur tells you about their successes. But the truth of the matter is that more than half of their experiences failed. They just don't talk. Yeah, that's why this podcast exists, right? <laughs> Break down the layers and the onions. So looking back at that whole two years, first sort of job, what kind of core elements and lessons did you pull from that that's really guide how you manage and, and lead today? First of all, I wasn't, I was, still am, but learned to overcome it. A huge introvert, right? I know Elliot is, Elliot's face is saying, you're an introvert? No. But no, the, the truth of the matter. You can be both. <laughs> you all kill me. That's so wrong. <laughs> the, if, if you, okay, let me describe me to, to you 20 something years ago. Wearing a, a, a t-shirt with Dungeons and Dragons picture because I was a dungeon master in my day wearing sweatpants because like why would you dress any other way than what's convenient to you and not necessarily making eye contact to the person talking to you huge introvert like going on a stage and talking scared the shit out of me 
even doing what we're doing today, that would be a reason for panic. And to me, in my world, logic just ruled what was emotion. Like it, it had no place. And even today, I, I make that sin, right? Where sometimes I lean more on logic than emotion and making that distinction on when you need to listen, give support, when you need to analyze and give a solution. I'm steering into the area of relationships and my wife. That's, that's not an easy task. And for me, having that feedback from others, and there was this one day I remember so clearly, I had the same feedback coming from three different people which were not overlapping. These people had, did not know each other, but they were all telling me, Ari, you're not listening enough, right? And that was this huge shock was, how is it possible that three different people that don't know me are all giving me the same feedback? They can't all be wrong, right? But at that stage, I was arrogant enough to think that if one person is giving me feedback, they must be wrong, I must be right. But when three people did it, I was like, maybe I need to think about myself differently. And that started a, a journey of, of self-awareness. So I think that every person's journey is different, but perhaps this podcast can put them on that track to taking the first step. And we talked about tools like decision journaling and like a pre-mortem and just being aware of the cognitive biases. I think these are the kind of tools that at least help me take that journey an extra step. This is something that's been happening over 20 years. It's not a it's not a, a quick fix. Coordinate your expectations. Be kind to yourself. Yeah. Regardless of what people say, you're not always born a leader. Sometimes you That's just right. age into it. Um, I right. do. Uh, I did not have a D&D &D shirt, uh, <laughs> although during COVID, that was very much a thing. Um, yeah, I was absolutely fearful of any of that. In fact, during our nonprofit days, and we had events every month or multiple times a month, Alex literally did all the talking. I had to get a lot of liquid courage just to get up there. But I don't know, maybe once you just get old, you stop giving a shit and stop caring what people think. And that's when you grow out of it. But yeah, I, I think that's absolutely critical. So if you're listening and you're young and you're trying to build something cool, don't be afraid of talking. Just get your idea out there. Get it beaten around. That's the best way to get some feedback anyways. That's right. It's okay. It's okay to practice. I'll have, I'll confess that before getting on this podcast, I practiced. I did an inventory of my 15 fuck-ups, right, over life, how things went wrong. For each one of these inventories, I didn't do it for all 15, but for five of them, I wrote a three-page story of everything that happened. And I did that analysis. And of course, oh my I have my, my, my decision journal right over here. So being able to really practice is a huge element in doing a good job. It's, you're not born great. You can work your ass off to it. And what's beautiful is that nobody knows the difference between genius and hard work. They always assume genius. So if you do a good job because you've practiced your ass off and worked incredibly hard, people will just assume that you're great. But that isn't necessarily true. So my word of encouragement to everybody is that hard work, practice, studying, and learning can lead you to success, which shouldn't be a huge surprise. But and we look at people and say, oh, that's Elon Musk. He's a genius, right? That's why he's successful. And ignore the fact that anybody can work hard and be successful. I love that aspect because that, that is one of those elements of why we're actually creating this series is that overnight success is not really a thing. Maybe with parental funding, <laughs> a couple million dollars to make a business start out of nowhere. But an athlete doesn't just become a 
gold medalist, an entrepreneur, how many serial entrepreneurs are out there? What are those serial businesses? They, they probably were failures until they are where they are now. Right. Maybe they had successful exits, but it, it's uncommon to be able to have that vulnerable perspective that is so critical to have out in the open. You, you really just get to have that piece of the puzzle. That's right. The saying that I love most is that it took me 10 years to become an overnight success. I've really enjoyed this conversation. This is a lot of what my consulting career was built on was all of these biases. So it's nice to have that nerdy conversation with someone else who, who can name it and understand it. But any final words of wisdom or nuggets that you'd like to throw out into the universe? I'll give you one. This is, you can totally cut this in editing, but it's the inspiration that I share with my team. And it's a poem, actually. If you know the giving tree, then it's the same author and it goes like this. I'll swing by my ankles, she'll cling to your knees. As you hang by your nose from a high up trapeze, just one foot please. As you float through the breeze, don't sneeze. So my, my, my recommendation to everybody is don't sneeze. But, but the big takeaway here is that you're, it's a lot of luck. You're on the edge of success. And don't attribute all your, just because the outcome was positive, it doesn't mean all your decisions was positive. And just because you were successful, it doesn't mean that everything that you did was the reason for the success. It's a team, right? Everybody's working together. Yeah. Amazing. Thank you so much. This was our first conversation and I'm sure that it will not be our last. I'm really looking forward to your Audible list because I have a, I have to add to my emotional support shelf of books I have not read yet because you can never learn too much. So really looking forward to that. But again, Ari, thank you so much for your time today. Great conversation and looking to, forward to continuing. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Edith. I was honored to be on your show. Appreciate it. Yeah, no, thank you so much for being part of our pilot and kicking this off in the best way possible. And for our listeners, stay tuned. We will be back with some other I don't know who we're going to bring up next. I feel like we've got something pretty cool for you. Yeah. Uh, failingpod.com, our subscription on Substack, Apple, Spotify, find us. Uh, we'll keep delivering. All right. See you next time. This has been Mastering the Art of Failing. Your hosts have been Alex Love and Elliot Volkman. To get the latest updates, go to failingpod.com and subscribe on your favorite podcast platforms. All viewpoints expressed on this series solely represent the individual speakers and guests who share them, and do not reflect the opinions of the companies they represent nor our sponsors. This has been a Chaos Production. Embrace it.